Good morning, good afternoon, maybe even good evening. Matthew Grant here, one of the partners at Instec London. Well, I hope like us, you are feeling a little bit more upbeat this week as gradually all around the world, people are being allowed out of their homes uh, and onto the streets and uh, even into the shops. We've also been seeing a marked pickup of interest here for what we're doing at Instec London with lots of discussions this week around membership and supporting our live chat events. Robin and I have also been doing the rounds of some of the industry conferences, virtually of course, speaking on panels and such like a refreshing change to be on the other side of the microphone. Now, if you are finding that your weekly dose of the Instec London podcast is not enough and you haven't already discovered our weekly live chat events on Bright Talk, then you might find something there of interest as well. Feel free to join or download and you get a chance to see us in action. And if you do it live, test us and our panelists with your live questions. Okay, not quite the glamour of Love Island, but at least it keeps us on our toes. Now, this week, we're bringing you a slightly different focus. Uh, as technology advances, it can sometimes be quite hard to keep up with everything that's going on. So this week, I'm talking to Frank Perkins, founder and CEO of Inari. Now, Inari, we're in the Lloyd's Lab cohort three. Frank himself has a strong pedigree of building technology whilst working for insurance companies. And Inari is now successfully building technology for insurance companies. Uh, I'm sure you'll be finding something of relevance in our questions, which cover how to find your technology CTO or co-founder, the emergence of low code and no code, and whether legacy is really that bad and how to work around it. Frank, great to spend some time together today. Uh, you set up Inari in 2017. You were on the last Lloyd's cohort. You actually had about nine years experience in the insurance world before that with ANV and then before that with HCC Tokyo Marine. But we're doing a slightly different version of the uh, podcast today because I've got some key questions that I'm really keen to ask you about related to technology. So I, let's hear a little bit first of all about what Inari is doing. Uh, first of all, it's great to be back in London. So, you know, we took some time after the lab. It, it was a very great experience for us. We're a technology or an ecosystem platform used by insurance companies where we can uh, make digital processes such as underwriting, claims, portfolio management, and our system does a lot of the, the heavy lifting of data acquisition, aggregation, calculation, uh, compliance, and you know orchestration of the different tasks that happen in insurance in a nutshell. Good. Well, you sound very well qualified to uh, help me understand these, uh, these, these questions I've got. So the first one is for an organization or an individual rather that is looking at starting their company or building their company, one of the key questions is how do they understand and how do they build the technology that's going to support them? So what is your advice to anybody with regards to looking for a founder or looking for one of their early hires who is somebody very strong on technology versus being able to use a, a third party or, or outsource the development of their technology? That's a great question. I think the you know the, the first part of that exercise is, you know, where where does our our unique proposition lie, or, or how do we execute our vision, right? And so I think what you see is that there's companies where their secret source, so to speak, resides in in the business problem they're resolving, and they're sort of resolving it with the help of technology, but not completely dependent on technology. So I think when you when you have an organization like this, it's really good to have as part of your founding team. Uh, let's call it a product owner. 
someone that un really understands the business proposition, but they can go out and from a, a technical perspective, maybe go out and, and coordinate with, with outsourcing teams to build that technology. Then you have other types of organizations where the their value proposition or what they're trying to solve is very technology dependent. The concept of their secret source may rely uh, or reside within an algorithm or within a piece of technology they need to develop. And then I think in that case, you uh, definitely want a, a much more stronger technical role as part of that founding team. Uh, you definitely want to have that team more in-house. And then, sort of, uh, you know, for the um, for the more well-defined sort of um, tasks, actually take that out to outsourcing if you, if you need to do it. But there's very clearly two t different types of organization when it comes to, to technology. So, taking the example there, where somebody's building a, a solution that's very much centered around technology, and that's a key part of the IP. So, if you've got somebody that's got an idea, they know it's got a strong technology basis, but they actually don't have a co-founder yet to go and build a business with what are the kind of places they should go and look for to find someone to help them build the business in any major city there's plenty of tech meetups right where you can go there and, and and you can see really strong technology professionals talking about technology but i know other people have actually gone on linkedin saying you know we have this idea we're starting this company up um who wants to join and and, and run the technical bit uh and then you know there's a couple of other websites as well you can actually go there so there's no sh no shortage really of of finding people that you know want to use their techno expertise um, to build something from scratch. And has anybody yet come up with a dating app then for uh, founders looking for uh, for technology partners uh, out there? I think we we just got a new startup idea <laughs> from that one. Well, in the meantime, uh, I also should put a quick plug in there for In State London. Of course, we have got our shout out where we allow anybody uh, sixty seconds with the microphone. And I think we've actually have had some people out there who've certainly found. Um, new employees. I don't think anyone's necessarily gone and found their technology partner. But yeah, it's good to hear that there's all those different options. So I want to come to that second part there. So if you've got a company where they don't necessarily need to have one of the founders who's strong on technology, but you talk there about looking for outsourcing or, or third parties, can you talk a bit about the sort of pros and cons of using an organization that's that's local where you, the, the team can meet people face to face versus outsourcing uh, or and offshoring that to some some organizations that's outside of the country when you're starting a new organization up that that ability to sit down with your outsourcing provider meet them face to face really give them good detail into what you're trying to achieve no, not even you could be uh, can be very clear on what you want to achieve you know startups go through many iterations it's really positive to, to actually have these face to face meetings and the person in the organization then that's who's going to be talking to the outsourced organization. We, we don't hear, I think, enough about the concept of the product manager in early stage companies. When you and I were talking before, we you know, both recognize that's a key role, even if it isn't necessarily described as such. So, so yeah, back to sort of version of that early question, what should somebody look for if they're going to bring somebody into the team or indeed if they're going to do it themselves? What kind of characteristics that person is going to be defining the product and actually engaging and briefing the, their technology partners to build it? Uh, I think there, there's sort of two sides to that role, right? So one is the sort of business side. It's someone that you know you can explain your idea and vision to, and they're going to be able to synthesize that into sort of more operational boxes, if that makes sense. Also someone that challenges you, and I know this from experience, sometimes you can have great ideas, and then when you have that chan internal challenge, the idea is better, and sometimes it isn't your idea, right? So it's important they, they have that side um, where they know how to listen, and they then they know how to synthesize that information. On, on the other side, they need to be uh, 
um, cognizant enough in technology or have enough technology expertise to actually then transform that into clear deliverables that then you can work with the outsource provider. I think um, many times when outsourcing falls over, it isn't because of the outsourcer, it's people aren't are very fuzzy with or very undefined with what they're expecting from an input and what they're expecting from an output and then also delivery times, right? And so having that person that can translate the business piece into very key, very concise deliverables, that's a very, very powerful tool. So we've got the, yeah, the skills to be able to do that at a high level, but from a more practical point of view, what would you look for in somebody that is going to be briefing the developers? What kind of tools or techniques do they have to convey a concept to the point that somebody can actually you know, produce some code and can produce some applications to satisfy that? When talking with, with developers, and, and you know, we, like, uh, you, there's a certain amount of skill set. So one of them is, is that it's like a sort of project manager, if you will, um, business analyst sort of skill set where you can clearly define these different actions into, in, in, into these clear sort of boxes of deliverables and explain them with very clear inputs and outputs. So you need someone that's mentally very organized and, and is able to sort through these ideas and really synthesize them in a very concise way with an outsourcer, even with an internal development team for that fact. I mean, you really need to be able to translate these things into, into digestible pieces. Okay, so you've got the concept, but what specific tools would people use? Is it things like they need to be able to create wireframes? Do they need to be comfortable using project management tools? I mean, what have you seen as best practice? Because it's one thing to talk about it. It's difficult to write it out in lengthy Word documents. Presumably a lot of this is done visually. Uh, how, what, what do you think is best practice in this kind of area? And indeed, what do you do with an Anari to, to brief your team? Yeah, uh, the, the only thing we don't do is write lengthy documents. That's that's definitely not it. So um, so we, we use a lot of prototyping tools, right? And so that enables us uh, to quickly translate something in our heads into, um, uh, you know, interactions and, and, and something very visual. Um, that's very, very helpful for developers, right? I mean, you can give a development team a big list of requirements, but if you can actually build a wireframe or a prototype and just click through it and they can start seeing the interactions and what the expectation is of that piece of software, that is a thousand times more powerful. Then you have actually, um, for you know, hashing out quick prototypes, you do have low-code and, and no-code um, systems where, where, you know, that sort of product uh, owner or product manager f if you will, can actually go in as an evolution of the wireframe, actually build these things. So for anybody that isn't familiar with a wireframe, and I introduced the term so I should describe it, essentially that's a way of mocking up how somebody would like to see either the final version or at least heading towards the final version. Frank, what, what recommendations do you have for anybody that would want to go out there and do some wireframing that doesn't really have deep experience in this area? There's one tool we use a lot. It's uh, uh, Axure, A-X-U-I-E. And that's a very, very powerful tool. So that's sort of the evolution of, so you have mock-up tools um, like Sketch, uh, et cetera. But actually, for instance, really allows us to, with no coding experience, build some really solid wireframes that then you present them to the development team and it, and it immediately clicks, right? And then um, then, you ha then you have other types of uh, more sophisticated low-code uh, tools like um, um, Verge.io or, or, or Visual Lancer. But Axure is, is definitely a very key piece of software for us. Good. Well, we'll put the links to those in the episode notes. And also, you mentioned low-code. We're going to come back and talk about that in a minute. Well, thanks. That was, that was uh, really helpful. So I wanted to move now to a different area that is coming up all the time these days uh, and the issue of legacy. And the question I have on this one is recognizing that all organizations out there that have been around for more than a couple of years are going to have 
some kind of legacy systems. And that's often seen or given as a reason why the insurance industry moves so slowly. It, you know, sometimes it's, it's given as a, a reason that you know, the insurance industry is never really going to be able to get ahead of, ahead of the game because it's always burdened by this legacy. But at the same time, there do seem to be applications out there that are working alongside or around legacy and seem to be providing ways for organizations to actually achieve that kind of pace. So I'd be interested in just what your perspective is in terms of how companies are going to be able to continue to accelerate, innovate without being burdened down by legacy systems. For me, legacy doesn't mean bad. I and mean, for a lot of people, it means bad. It just means it's legacy, right? It's uh, older systems. Um, there's a second concept uh, Many, many times people measure legacy in, in the notion of time. And I think, uh, in my opinion, how you should measure legacy is in, is in technological generations, right? You can have a piece of software that's five years old that isn't API enabled. And I could consider, and that's just as legacy as a 20 year old, you know, AS400 system. The third point is, is even for us new shiny insurtechs today, um, depending on how we architect our products, we can be the legacy of tomorrow. I think when dealing with legacy, you, you have three options, right? So you have the classic option, which is we go in and you, you know, full out uh, replace the system and you migrate. Um, I think today in 2020, that's, if it, if it can be, it should be avoided. Option number two for those organizations that have a bit more resources actually run in parallel. You have option number three for the people that don't have the resource to, to actually build in parallel, which is one of my preferred options. And, and uh, one of the strong points of Inari besides building the digital bit is uh, to very organically sit around and next to legacy systems, right? And so you may have a legacy policy administration system that is not API enabled, but I may want to enrich the data in that system with you know, data from an API. Um, there's techniques to be able to uh, ingest the data from that system, do stuff with it. It could be enriching data, it could be running a process and then pushing that data back into that legacy system. So you're actually turning the spaghetti into layers, and then as you're intersecting all that transit of data, that migration is already occurring in a very natural way. So that they, if you ever want to switch off that system, a lot of the work is now is now done. It's very uh, non-traumatic. It's kind of like spaghetti becomes the lasagna. So I think what you're saying by that is that you know, the old problems with spaghetti code was somebody would write some code to go and do anything, you had to write some more code that would wrap around the old code, and it just got more and more complicated. Now the way you're describing the options for legacy is you actually create some new applications that sit outside and around the legacy. And over time, you can replace, or not if you choose to, the core. But you're not adding more complexity. You're actually adding simplicity over and above the original legacy core. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it's 100% correct. And, and you know, real-life examples that, that we've seen uh, in Ari. So you'll go in and you have a claim system and a policy admin system and maybe a, a you know a, a pricing tool and you have document management and some things speak to each other other things don't and there's all these different processes and and and, and bespoke code that's been built you know and it gets very very messy it's very very hard to track and then so what you do is you go and identify you know what, what does that spaghetti look like and how do i untangle it and and you go in this is a common theme and instead of a big bang approach you go in and you fix small pockets where you can go in uh, and really prove a before and after and that deliverable and, and it, uh, distinctly solve something, right? And then you do it in increments uh, and you're actually going to make these orderly layers and you can actually start creating a, a really good application model. Well, good. Well, we know we've been successful with this discussion if people start talking about the Sanya as the alternative to 
spaghetti. The other thing you mentioned in passing there was about APIs. And again, APIs, and I think rightly so, are often identified as being one of the, the major criteria for identifying if systems can talk to each other. But if I understand correctly what you're saying, it sounds like there are now technologies that can work with systems that have been around for a number of years, haven't got APIs that can that are built in, but nonetheless, it's now possible to be able to get to the data and information as it goes in, take it out, do something with it, put it back in again. And so the lack of an API is no longer a, uh, a sort of major issue for these systems anymore. The things can still evolve and scale with other options rather than having to rely on an API being built into the technology. Is that is that a correct understanding? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we we are in 2020, right? And we've we've had big leaps in technology in the last three four years that actually facilitate this. So the the notion that there's only one way in and out of a system to access that data that's a very old notion, and that could be from just uh, ingesting data into an alternate location, doing something with it, put it back in, creating a, a, a you know an API interface. There's many different techniques now to just think about. It. You you go out and you spend two, three, four, five million pounds on a system. Uh, you spend a lot of your time building that system. Um, you know, I think just being able to come in and latch pieces onto it and do it in a very orderly, very controlled way and, and enhance it, I think it's just a very powerful, a very powerful option that shouldn't be discounted. Good. So again, it sounds like this whole concept of digital versus digitized, meaning digital is the entire, often considered to be new digital journey, whereas digitized is is basically retrofitting uh, digital components onto a, a legacy isn't necessarily bad in itself as long as it isn't slowed down or throttled by some of the slowest moving parts of the legacy. You still need to be able to move fast or you know, continue to evolve the applications and innovate with the, the digitized version, but it sounds like the technology now is increasingly coming that can do that. Yeah, yeah, and, and you can move that paradigm from that digitized paradigm, which is for me is just putting technology on a way of doing things to actually um, helping that older technology be digital, be fit into that uh, different mindset of doing things. Now, I want to come back to a term you mentioned there earlier on, which is low code. And we also hear about uh, no code. I was speaking to Gary Hopeman, CEO of Uncork, recently, and that's a major part of what they are offering. So do you see this shift towards technology that requires either little coding or, or even no coding at all as being part of the solution and indeed the whole technology landscape going forward? It's an amazing tool, right? Uh, as my, my personal opinion. I mean, low code, no code has been been out for some time. It just was called something different. Now it's getting very, very popular. I think anything that democratizes, so to speak, the way that people can um, take an idea in their heads and transform that into an app or into a piece of software, um, that's just a very powerful tool, right? Uh, there's there's you know, there's great ideas out there, and it shouldn't be hindered because you don't know how to program in Python or, or Java or, or .NET. It's an amazing tool, and we're you know we're even seeing that in schools. You know, kids are learning how to code thanks to low code, no code systems. On the other hand, I think uh, there's also an education here to to understand uh, how far these platforms can go, and when it's the when it's the moment to work with the development team, and when it's a moment uh, to work with low code, no code. The other warning would be in in larger organizations is when you suddenly have the ability to have that creative expression in, in apps and codes in a very, very easy way to avoid app creep, right? And you suddenly have an estate of a thousand apps that you, you know, it's, it's hard to control. So it's an amazing tool. As with any tool, it needs to be used in the right way. And I'm picking up on that. So you think about this no-code environment where literally no coding is required and you can plug together different elements. That's a dangerous tool in, in the wrong hands, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it also does enable people to build applications, as already said earlier, 
test them out. So what is your recommendation for people in terms of being able to, to provide that ability within an organization for people to be able to start using some of these technologies? And I'd actually also be interested in some examples as well about you know, what's the balance between democratizing technology, giving people access to applications versus you still need to have some control, maybe some organizations the IT department wants to control all of this. I mean, what's the right balance between flexibility versus control? Extending those tools out to controlled segments of the populace within an organization, showing them how they work and say, okay, right, you guys are very, very close to the business problems that we may have. And this is a, this is an, a way that you can actually try and find a solution to it. And there's, that's very powerful, right? Uh, and you can control that. And it can be done in a very controlled way. I think what I'd recommend against is just going out to the organization saying, you know, here's a new low-code platform. We do a one-week training session, if, if even that, and then you just walk away. That's, I, I think that's not the appropriate way to do it, but the but a better way to do it is have it in that controlled environment and, and actually see what comes out of that. I mean, I think the same revolution that's happened in the insure tech world that you've had, in this case, it's been people not necessarily... Uh, institutionalized within insurance providing a new vision and new solutions i think you can do that within your own insurance organizations with tools like this uh, it just needs to be controlled and governed in an appropriate way yeah i mean it feels like there's a really intriguing opportunity there for organizations where they want to empower the underwriters to to get involved with innovation it sounds like you can't just give them the tool and they get on with it but at the same time you know they've got some ideas things they want to experiment with then they can do it and i suppose to some to some extent that's how the evolution of Excel happened. I mean, a lot of underwriters in technical areas use Excel. There's a limit to what you can do with Excel, but they were able to achieve some quite powerful analytics building themselves. And I guess that's an example if you look at what's now possible with with low-code tools uh, that you could see more of in the future. Are, are there any examples then that you could refer to or recommend that people should take a look at if they want to learn more about what's out there? Excel was a or is a powerful tool, um, but we all know that that's turned into the Excel creep of, of many organizations. So I, I do think there's a, there's, a, there's a framework around that. Um, Verge.io is one uh, site that I like a lot, Virtual Lancer as well. You could consider Amazon in, in many aspects to be low-code, no-code for certain operations that we just point-click now and build infrastructure. And so um, yeah, done in the right way, I think that's a, just, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, done the right way or done in the wrong way that doesn't break things. That is correct. Allowed people yeah. to experiment. But no, your, your comment about Excel is, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people would resonate to that. You know, one hand, it's a fantastic tool, but as you say, if it starts to become the backbone for an organization's technology, then that's quite dangerous as well. Good, well, that was incredibly helpful. So uh, I've just got um, another, another question for you, which is, I guess, a version of the first question, but taking this up to a insurance organization. One of the challenges I think many executive teams have all the way up to the CEO is how do they choose the right person for their organization to take on the CTO role or the equivalent to CTO role. You know, clearly they need someone that is up to date on all the emerging technologies but there are lots of different choices out there and some technologies are a dead end, some are quite dangerous, some are still in their early stages. So what's your advice to anybody out there who is either a CEO of an insurance organization or in an influential position or maybe even sitting on a board of an insurance organization and, and wants to ensure that the right choices are being made and maybe you know, the right uh, controls are in place around the recommendations from the CTO? In my opinion, to, to get someone that's uh, very strong from a technical perspective and train them on the business bit, uh, than not the other way around. 
And so another idea is there's many companies now in the marketplace that can come and give you sort of um, a second opinion or, 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 or sit on some of these steering groups so that you actually, instead of having sort of the management team and the CTO looking at a problem and looking at the solutions, you have that third pair of eyes. And, and your point about the people that can advise is, is a very important one. It's interesting that there's a lot of people out there who are you know, recognized as sort of influencers when it comes to you know, the emerging technology. You mentioned InsureTech. Everyone's got their own definition of what InsureTech is. Uh, it would be great to see a, a parallel universe or, or maybe the same universe of people who are advising on you know, the best technologies when it gets to more sophisticated, complex companies using those and also the, the people that are out there. But Frank, that's been you know, really helpful. I personally have learned an awful lot from that. And as you said, we'll, we'll cover this uh, in the episode notes on the website as well. So all the links are in there. And, and finally, anybody that would like to know a little bit more about Inari or talk to you about how you can help their organization, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Uh, yeah, so we have our website, www.inari.io. We're very happy not only to talk about our product, but you know, any, any, any topic around about InsureTech. Excellent. Well, Frank, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, lots of useful tips there and, of course, the details in the episode notes. Now, we've got a lineup of some really fascinating guests coming up in the next few weeks. I'm sure you'll recognize some of the names and the people. Uh, if you want to take a look at our live events, as I mentioned, go to our website, London for the links for those and everything else that we are up to. Uh, and if you've got this far, then perhaps you could also take a few more moments and leave us a review on whatever podcast app you are listening to or indeed message me or comment via LinkedIn. Enjoy your new freedom.